Oopsla podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. Mesdames, Messieurs, bienvenue encore. Maintenant, je vous présente Professeur David Parnas. Um, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce David Parnas. Uh, but before I do, uh, I want to propose a question for you to consider. How should we structure software? I need hardly pose that because that question floats in the air of every oopsler. How should we structure software? How should we structure software? I first started reading David Parnas's work when I was a student, and uh, I think he was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, the work, of course, on uh, program decomposition uh, was groundbreaking. At the time, I was sufficiently young to not realize that, and thought insight like that occurred all of the time. <laughs> Makes me now think that... Uh, David Parnas is uh, perhaps one of the best pieces of evidence for time travel that I've seen. I don't know any other way that such insight could have been developed at that point. I believe if we play that game where we imagine we could time travel and go back into the past of our discipline and give them the key insight that it took a lifetime for us to see, well, I propose Dave has already done that. When I met Dave for the first time, um, I was working in New Zealand, and uh, Dave was on a tour talking about a number of interesting projects, including a system that he had students working on on bartering without any exchange of money that I found fascinating at the time. But events overtook him, and he became an international speaker on what was known then as Star Wars, or the Strategic Defense Initiative. And he was talking about this kind of a military system could not be built. Uh, when I met him some years later, uh, back in Canada, he was talking about safety-critical systems. And it took me a little while to see the pattern. Now, remember my question. How should we structure software? Turns out that's not the right question. That question refers to technology. And that really shows some of the insight in all of the points I've ever seen Dave Parnas make. He always made certain he did not talk about the technology. He talked about the principles. The question that he saw was, what are the principles for structuring software? When I saw him talk about the Strategic Defense Initiative, Many people who thought that it was possible simply talked about new technology coming all of the time. And he was quick to point out that there are principles which do not change. And I then saw that this was the thread. The principles of structuring software, the principles of software complexity, the principles of design for safety-critical systems. Ladies and gentlemen, a man of principles, David Parnas. Thank you, Robert. I must say it's the first time I've been introduced by somebody who made a plus out of not knowing the technology. Now, how do I get my slides back? Because they were, they were here before. Okay. 
<clears throat> now, I just want you to know that as far as I can tell from the program, I'm the last of the dinosaurs. <laughs> Tomorrow you get current people again. You don't have to use the word honor. Uh, but for today, it's the old guys. The, um, actually, this is the first time in a long, long time that I've been preceded by two speakers older than I am. So I, I, I'm going to try to relive this day a few times. Now, actually, I want to think of this talk, in a way, as a follow-on to Fred Brooks's talk. Fred Brooks set out what was needed to make collaboration work. And just in a couple places, he hinted that we needed to be able to do some of the things that I'm going to talk about. But I think to make collaboration work, we need to be able to communicate very precisely about the components. And that's really my theme. So I, I think there is some, some continuity. And in fact, Fred is in this talk a little bit. But I'm glad he left first. <laughs> so let's start out. Uh, when I, this is the first Uppsala I ever came to. And uh, the reason was that I never really understood the need for the, the word object-oriented that I thought the same concepts had been around a little, little bit earlier and that I'd learned about them from other people even, even before my own work. Uh, my meaning for object-oriented, and this is how I've always explained it to my students, has nothing to do with what language you use. And that's why I didn't like the, the slut part, you know, <laughs> the pussle part, I guess. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, and I'm sorry I tried. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> that it's a matter of when you go to design a piece of software, you start to think about a set of objects which, if you had them, would make the task easy to describe. So you, you, you create the objects. You, you design by creating objects. And I think, for example, that that's what Dijkstra did in his THE system, it's what I did with that old quick index example. And no special language was necessary. Dijkstra's THE system was written in assembler. And the only thing about the languages were they were supposed to make it easier. Now, what's actually happened, I think, they've made it harder. And I attribute sort of redundant concepts like aspects to the fact that the languages made it a little harder to build good object-oriented systems. And what I've also noticed is that teaching people that a language is object-oriented makes them think that somehow this is a property of language and not a property of how you've designed something. I did, Dijkstra did his first work in, uh, in, well, most of his work, I think, actually, in machine language. I did mine in Fortran. And it had nothing to do with the language. But what scares me is how many people I meet, all much younger than I, who see the, um, the, this thing as a language issue. Now, one of my favorite jokes is the story of the, the five blind men that meet the elephant. And each uh, runs into a different part of the elephant and sees a tree or a snake or a rope or something like that. It's usually four blind men. I added the fifth who happened to go underneath the elephant and thought he found a waterfall. 
And that's, that's the, uh, the bad point of that story. But there are several things that I think really lead you to the same designs. It's just a different emphasis. So when Dijkstra used to talk about separation of concerns, his main emphasis was on our ability to, to, to think clearly. That by separating concerns and thinking about one at a time, it took care of what he called the smallness of the human skull. Now, other people began to talk about levels of abstraction. This is actually the term I like the least. I shudder every time somebody says it because I don't know what the more abstract than relation is and I don't think it has the properties that it takes to define levels. I think people mean something different. But I I can see the, the emphasis of what they're doing and... There's basically there partly a stress on subsetability by building a, a ever extended sequence of virtual machines, and no language people that Java did not invent the virtual machine. Then I introduced the idea of information hiding modules, and when I was doing that, my stress was on a completely different issue. I'd been talking to managers about how to break up things into work assignments, so. My idea of module, I said it in the paper and I keep saying it, when I talk about a module, I talk about uh, a way of, a job for somebody that they can do without losing too much time in the talking to each other that gives the mythical man month its title. And also a certain amount of flexibility and substitutability. Another view of this, which seems to have pretty much disappeared from, from the view, is the abstract data types. And I attribute the first, I think the first person I heard using this was Barbara Liskoff. And I think the, the interesting thing about this was she used all the same examples that everybody else used, but she was able to have more than one of each. Like in my view, I just had one module, one data structure for each type, and she had more than one. I think that was a major thing. And then I began to hear about object orientation. And other than the fact that people were sort of linking it up with Simula and saying you needed languages for it, I didn't see any new emphasis or application in it. When people started talking about components, I thought that first I thought they were just talking about the same thing, but then I realized that again, they had a slightly different emphasis. They were thinking about distribution. You put your, you, you know, you, you sell a component that other people can build into their system, or you, you, buy, you buy a component. And, and, but modules did not have to be components. Components did not have to be modules. But you still found that the same sort of thinking of building objects works. So somehow, I, that's why I think of these as many different ways of looking at the same elephant and that they're all useful because each of those things, there's no conflict between them. And I think when I teach, I haven't taught for a while, but when I teach, I try to teach what they have in common. And I point out that if you actually go back to the early papers, the same set of examples appear in very similar ways. And it doesn't matter. You don't want to argue about which came first because everybody was first in their own mind. Now, the first negative thought I ever heard about this, because most people just either ignored it or liked it, came from Fred Brooks. And uh, Fred Brooks has a a book that everybody should read called The Mythical Man Month. 
It was put out in two editions, and you should only read the second. <laughs> because in the first edition, he talks about information hiding, and he says it's a recipe for disaster. Right? And in the second edition, he, he didn't take that out to his credit. He did not try to deny his error. But he added a very short section on things that he had changed his mind about, and one of them has the title, Parnas Was Right. And I, <laughs> and, and I have already um, told people that that's what I want on my gravestone. <laughs> I've just now told a bigger audience. So if any of you are there to, to say that's what I want on my gravestone. I've heard that twice in my life where it meant something to me. One was when Fred Brooks said it, because I respect him very, very greatly. And the second time was when somebody went down about 10 years after the Star Wars thing and uh, interviewed them. Somebody went from the CBC down and they wanted Canadian content. So they said, what about the software? And the guy looked away from him, spat on the floor and said, Parnas was right. <laughs> so I want that on my gravestone twice. <laughs> Once on each side. Okay. But, you know, I know why Fred thought that. Because Fred was thinking, how will we ever get the things to fit together if we hide the information from each other? Now, what he had missed is, of the two papers I published in 72, the one about information hiding as a way of decomposition was the second. The first one actually talked about of, of what I would today call documentation, how to document the interfaces. And after I published that, people kept saying, yeah, but the reason that works is your modules are different. And that's when I wrote the second one. It wasn't a surprise to me, but somehow I thought being sort of half-raised in a computer science environment, not a complete victim, I, um, I thought the language was what I had to talk about. And the interesting thing to me is that I don't think I had it right then. Uh, I've never been happy with the various approaches to module interface documentation that I had over the years, and I've actually tried many. They all had funny limitations. And I think I finally got it right a few years ago, and I will talk about that a little bit briefly today. But. So 35 years later... I can first of all tell you that I never doubted the truth of the information hiding theorem. And I'll explain why I call it a theorem in a minute. But what I've always doubted is the assumption by many language designers that modules were collections of procedures to be invoked by a procedure call position. I was not happy with the documentation associated with it. And I'm, I'm still working on documentation because I think it's the other side of the coin. Now, one of the things that surprised me a few years ago was that I went to a conference on empirical software engineering, and they started telling me that information hiding was an empirical result. It isn't. It's a very simple, close to trivial, I guess maybe even trivial mathematical theorem that says if you have two modules and you can prove A correct knowing only a limited set of things about B then if you change B but don't change that limited set of things, A doesn't have to change. That's a mathematical fact. But I did conduct some trials. I wouldn't grace them anymore with the word experiment. They weren't uh, 
properly designed, but I conducted some trials, and they were to get empirical verification of something different. That was that people can figure out what to hide, and at least they can figure out some of the things to hide. Even in that example, there was a mis... I forgot to hide something. That you can do it with efficient interfaces, and that we're able to give precise descriptions to the interfaces without giving away what I call the secret, the thing you're hiding. And that's what the experiments were about. And this is one of the things I think has gotten lost in this field. I think everything we propose should have a simple and sound mathematical basis, but you don't stop there. You do the empirical studies to make sure that, because lots of things are theoretically right, but not really right. right? I think theoretically in the, in the English language often means not really. Like, like, theoretically, we can all run a four-minute mile. Why did I put that word in there? Because most of us can't. And <clears throat> so you, you need the empirical thing to see if the theory actually is borne out by, you know, it's consistent with the, makes it practical. The other side of it, of course, is you don't start with the empirical, or you don't stop with the empirical. Whichever one you start with, you end up needing both. If you have a method, you should be able to show what the mathematics is that makes it sound. And if you have the mathematics, you need to show that it's practically applicable. So here is the key, <laughs> a big part of it. When I, this I stole, obviously, from somebody. It's this well-known serenity prayer about God give me the wisdom to know the difference, the difference between what I can change and what I should hide and what I shouldn't hide, what will change and what won't change. It's a new application of this, but it's, I think, the key to being a good software designer. I remember years ago having a discussion with a recruiting person who said, he found that younger programmers were so much more energetic than older programmers, he didn't know why he should hire older people or pay them more. The older I got, the more answers I had for that. <laughs> and the answer is very simple. Young people don't know what's likely to change, what ought to be hidden, what's arbitrary, what you, what, what you, need, to, what, what you need to know to decide what should be the secret of a module or encapsulated in an object. If you just want somebody to write lightning code, try somebody's eight-year-old kid. Okay. So today I want to talk about documentation mostly because what I'm going to try to argue is that it doesn't do any good to hide something unless you have something good to give people instead. So I go back pretty far back. And the first time I really realized there was a problem was when I left academia for a while and went to work for Philips Computer Industry, which no longer really exists, in Apeldoorn in, in Holland. And they didn't quite know what to do with me because the person who had wanted me there had been transferred to Brussels. And they didn't want me to get fat by going where the food was good. So they kept me in, in Holland. And he said that his problem, he was a manager of quite a lot of programs for that time, and he said his problem was he didn't know how to tell somebody precisely what they should do, sufficiently precisely that if he had told three people to do things and he put their work together, it would work, right? And he asked me how, how to do that. And this is what started me thinking, right, that this was a real problem the man had, 
He really didn't know how to do that. You could see the problems that it caused because things never worked when first put together. And there was no way to blame anybody. That's the hard part for a manager because, because each one could somehow point that they weren't violating what they were told. And so he asked me to try to do it. And when I tried to do it for the modules that they had, I found it very, very difficult. It wasn't difficult in theory. It was just really difficult. And the reason it was really difficult was that they had to know an awful lot about each other. Right? Because one of them was writing on a data structure and the other one was reading a data structure that they, written by the first and they had to know exactly how that data structure was being used by each of them. And writing that all down was, at that time, I think, very, very hard and it's still not easy. And he wanted a solution to those problems. And I came back and said, combine these modules. And I don't know how often I've said that in my life. Now, just in case you believe the myth that there's been great progress over the years, I can prove to you that this is also a very current problem. Because the Europeans in the audience probably know that Microsoft is now paying 3 million euro a day, or at least is supposed to be paying 3 million euro a day for the, uh, to the EU Commission. Why? It has to do with their workgroup servers. The EU Commission has a, a Dutch commissioner in charge of competition named Nelly Cruz, and Nelly believed that there should be other people making workgroup servers. And they were smart enough to see that nobody wanted to mix servers from different companies and everybody had Microsoft servers. So they told Microsoft to write a, write a specification. Essentially what they wanted was them to say what the other servers had to do in order to interact properly on a network that contained Microsoft servers. And I can tell you, though I can't tell you much because a lot of this is, is confidential, that Microsoft, to my view, appeared to have tried very, very hard. I know that one of the biggest files in my computer was the documentation that they produced. And I also know that they made my job very easy and the job of many other people who looked at it because it was very easy to find questions that they didn't answer and places where they contradicted each other. Now, I know some cynics who say that Microsoft didn't really want to do this. They didn't want to lose their monopoly. My belief is, from having looked and, and talked a little bit to the people, that they really tried, but they didn't know how to do it. Right? So that problem that my boss had in Holland nearly 40 years ago is still a real problem. And I think it's time that we started to think about this as a documentation problem, right? And I found, I started working explicitly on documentation about 20 years ago, and I found when somebody says, what are you working on now, Dave? They sort of, I said documentation, they sort of looked at me like I was over the hill. You know, Dave's gotten old and he's working on, that was 20 years ago. I wonder what they think now. <laughs> I still haven't learned how to write a good document. But I believe it's very hard to measure this but I have all kinds of anecdotal evidence that our inability to write documentation is the key to many, many of the expensive problems that we're in. Now, I started my life as an electrical engineer and actually worked for a while as an electrical engineer 
So somebody I talked to the other day was telling me he liked to hear new ideas. These are actually old ideas. Because what I saw in engineering, and it's true in mechanical, it's true in, in, uh, in electrical, it's true in civil engineering, that people design through documentation. If you're going to build one of Fred Brooks's beautiful bridges, you don't begin by throwing rocks in the water. <laughs> right? You begin by drawing first sketches, showing the traffic flow and how the bridge will look, and ever more detailed documents until finally you have a document that you can hand to the guy who throws the rocks in the water. Tells him exactly where to throw it, how big the rocks have to be, and so forth. So the documents throughout this process, they guide the builders, they assist in inspection. You no longer examine the partially completed bridge against basic principles. You don't do the equations every time you review the bridge. You compare it to the documents to see if they're building in accordance with the documents. It assists in maintenance. And I've seen buildings where, they, where the, the documents haven't been kept up. It makes the maintenance much more expensive. And it enables systematic design review. And the attitude towards documentation in these engineering projects is very, very different from what you see in software. They're binding, for example. Whereas in software, if you find a, a conflict between the document and the, and the program, they'll say, well, it's the program that counts. And maybe, if you're lucky, they'll fix the document. <laughs> but it's, nobody feels bound by the documents. Uh, the documents in engineering, even when they're pictures, are precise documents that actually represent mathematical equations. They're not introductions. You don't give the blueprints of a bridge to somebody as an introduction to how to drive over the bridge. They are not extracted comments. Like after the bridge is built, click, click, click. You take a bunch of views and say, this is my documentation. Although I did see somebody doing that in an old footbridge in Limerick because he said that they were worried about floods and they wanted a, a complete record of what the bridge looked like now. It had been built long ago and nobody even knew who did it. So he was doing it by photos. But even then, they were very carefully calibrated photos. And you also find that the documents show a separation of concern. Now, when I took a course in engineering drawing, one of the things I mentioned, for any solid object, it took at least three, three drawings. Top view, side view, front view sometimes with objects that had holes in it, which most software does, uh, <laughs> you need more than one, more than three views, right? And <clears throat> nobody tried to say, here's one big document that does everything. You need a set of documents. Now, I heard the phrase again today about software crisis, and that it's now 40 years old or something like that. That's not a crisis. A Crisis is a turning point, a moment of truth. You either live or die, right? It's, it's a chronic disease. And I think it has three uh, really uh, underlying causes. The first is a lack of disciplined design. So often you get somebody sort of has a vague idea in their head. They have a stand-up meeting and they chat over the phone in a video thing or whatever they do. And then they sit down and they write. And... Uh, <laughs> That's, to me, not a disciplined design. They, they leave out all kinds of the rough edges that you need to do about. The second thing is 
there really isn't thorough review, inspection, and testing. Most of the, I used to do a lot of industrial consulting, and I'd sit in on design reviews, and I'd saw this was a, a place to get time off from your hard work. <laughs> you sat there and let somebody read the code to you, and if you noticed an out-of-place comma or something, fine, you said it. But you, you always thought the responsibility was somebody else's and the lack of documentation. And I think that all the other problems that we see are symptoms of this and that documentation is the key to this. Because I believe that documentation that is not fully documented is not really considered and taken and it's not binding, can't be reviewed, and it won't serve for a basis for inspection. So I think talking to the academic researchers in here, especially the younger ones, teaching figuring out how and being able to show people how to make good engineering-style documents, precise documents that you mean you don't have to look at the code, not introductory documents or user documents. It's the biggest contribution that we could make to, um, to really helping the software industry. Now, I want to make it clear that when I say this, I'm thinking of a practical tool, not a theoretical uh, Achievement. I don't care if somebody says to me, I can document any piece of software as a Turing program, Turing machine program. That's not a practical tool. Neither a Z or VDM. It's a, it's a way to demonstrate your, versa, your, your stick-to-itiveness. The first thing I think about a, a documentation has got to be an authoritative repository of information. That means it has to be organized in such a way that you know where to put something then it has to be a convenient and useful reference document. Now, what that means to me is that it's organized like a dictionary rather than like an introduction to English. If you think about your, if, if English isn't your language or if you've learned some other language, the introductory books, you would never use them now that you know the language, or at least I hope so if you're listening to me. <laughs> you, would, you would go to a dictionary if I use some word you don't know. Right? Because the first thing was an easy way to get into the language, but it wasn't a good way to look up the detailed facts. And the word order is somebody's idea of what is it easiest to learn first, whereas the word order in the dictionary has nothing to do with that. There's an arbitrary word order imposed so that you can find it quickly, as long as you know how to spell, which is the hard part. Uh, I want it to be, my test is, if I ask somebody a question about their program, that before they go to the code, they go to the documents. If they find it easier to read the code, then that's no good. And that's what's wrong with Z, by the way. That, that there's structure in it that avoids inconsistency. I'll talk more about that later. And that it's better than just let's try it. What my experience has been, and this goes back nearly 30 years now, is that if you have such documents, they're used th before you write the code, while you're writing the code, and after the coding. Some people may know about our work on the A7 aircraft. When we wrote uh, a requirements document for that aircraft, most of the errors we had in the initial versions were found by pilots. Pilots could read it. So that's step one. That's the before. When we were coding, we found that that document 
passed what I call the coffee stain test. That is, if you go into a group of coders and you see documents that don't have coffee stains on them, you either have somebody who sleeps enough at night and isn't very useful, or, or you have documents that aren't very useful because they always get coffee stained on them. And I was really glad that when we actually tried to code up the things from the requirements documents, people were using it all the time. And what we then found was that because a similar document was made for the Air Force thing, they started using it for maintenance. For example, for contracting changes and things like that. They would find in our requirements document the pages that had to be changed. And then they would say, these things change and nothing else change, and it had a watertight contract for the changes. So it's useful. It's worth investing in because it's used throughout the life cycle of the, the software. Now, I think, unfortunately, when you started, when managers like my manager started complaining to me about not being able to write good documentation, that uh, computer scientists heard this too, and they said, usually good specification. And they started using the word specification in what is, for an engineer, a very strange way. I saw, for example, an old paper called A Specification of an Operating System which was actually just fragments of code written in semi-algol, which, by the way, did have a fan club. Uh, that's the only point on Fred Brooks's slide that I, that I didn't agree with, but the, there are many members of that fan, fan club. If you take algol 60, not 58 or 68, but uh, 8 was not a good year for algol. But, uh, but um, the, um, they, they just started writing down things sort of random facts about, about the product. Whereas in engineering, a specification always meant the requirements that something had to satisfy. Right? It, it never meant just some information. Like if I said that this table has a pattern with a little watermark here, that's a fact about it, but it's not a requirement as far as I know. If I said it had to be able to hold a few computers and, and shoulders and elbows uh, and a bottle of water and so forth, that would be a, a specification because that would be a requirement, be part of the specification. And what I found is all the people who talked about specifications for years and years and created the word formal methods, which I've come to deny any connection with, uh, they all took a very loose definition of the word specification, which just meant some specific bits of information about a product. I think what was asked for, what is needed today, is specification in the engineering sense, what the potential competitors to Microsoft need to know is what properties must their server have, what are they required to do in order to fit in with the Microsoft server. Now, at one point, it was on that early slide. There's a link you can read here. There's a, there's a link on this slide, and I think you have this somewhere on one of the disks. There's a, Microsoft actually came up and said, well, if we can't give you a document that's good enough, which they didn't actually say, but that was between the lines, the best specification of the code is the code itself. And the potential competitors unanimously said, we don't want your code. <laughs> now, there are many reasons for that. 
One of which was the code only said what it did now. It didn't say what the requirements were. Right? Others was that it's pretty hard to read that code, otherwise maybe they could do the job. <laughs> and uh, the third thing was a, a, a legal problem of when would they, they be treating, stealing trade secrets if they u- looked at the code. So as far as I know, that website essentially says they're offering that code to potential competitors, and as far as I know, none of them have taken it. They don't want to be contaminated. So I, I think... We have to keep in mind what's really wanted and not allow ourselves to be misled by misuses of a word like specification. All words are very bendable. So I want to now try to relate this. One of the things that has always bothered me, for example, is that the people who said they could prove the correctness of code but didn't have the specification for it. Right? How can you... Prove something correct without a specification. You never prove that something is correct. You only prove that it meets the specification that you have. And that specification has to be more than a wish list. It has to be very precise about how that, those wishes will be realized. So <clears throat> what, what we've also found is, and I'll talk more about this later, is that the right documentation can make the verification easier and and allow inspections to be easier and more effective. So if I look for a software document, here's what I look for. Accuracy. It's horrible when the document is wrong. It means people will stop using it. But some will keep using it, and then they won't understand each other. Precision. uh, You know, Fred was talking this morning about it's better to be uh, precise and wrong than to be vague. And I, I think he's right. I remember looking at many documents and I said, this is so bad it isn't even wrong. <laughs> right? Because in some of the interpretations could be right. Uh, we want consistency. Uh, one of the things that was wrong with the Microsoft documentation and most other real documentation I've looked for is that if you looked hard enough and knew how to look, you could find that it contradicted itself. You want to be completeness. Well, you'd find that there were certain questions you couldn't answer from the document. And you wanted it to be easier to find things. When I had to look at this thing, I was really glad it wasn't on paper because I was making lots of use of search tools in order to find the, the false that I found. Now, the first three of these, I think, require mathematics, but I'll be a little more specific about that later on. The last three are issues of notation and organization. But the the mathematics and the organization are the two sides of the coin that you have to think about. Now, I have a few rules about all these documents. The first thing is I don't want any introductory sections in my document. I find that if I take what is supposed to be a reference document and put any introductory material in it at all, people do not respect the difference between the introduction and the reference part. They quote and often misinterpret the introductory part. So if I'm going to have to write an introduction, I'm going to put it in a separate document. In fact, I used to, I had one student with whom I made a funny thing. We would have some very precise technical documents. And if you clicked on it in the right place, you'd get a little voice telling you what the intent was. And the idea was you only got that once. 
You could not go back to it. It was to help you understand why something was written the way it was. But it was not something you could use again. And we even had it set up so the computer wouldn't play it for you twice. I got a lot of students that had two or three uh, uh, IDs and passwords in order to be able to hear it several times. (laughs) There's a way around everything. So don't mix those. Don't depend on words. I'll show you what the substitute is. You have to use mathematics, but it has to be simple mathematics and what engineers call closed-form mathematics. You should include only relevant information. should not be any information that you can derive from that document that might not need to be true. And everything should only be in one place because otherwise, if it's in two places, people will come along and change one of them. Then you won't have consistency anymore. These are all more easily said than done. The other thing is that for each document, you should have a clearly defined role. It can either be a description, a partial specification, or a full specification. Description contains facts about the, the, the product. And some of those facts may be requirements, others not. That, that, the description is the weakest. A specification states only requirements, and a full specification, which is a little bit hard to get sometimes, states all the requirements. So I'll be using that terminology uh, throughout this talk. The thing that makes this hard for some computer scientists to understand is that the same notation may be used for all three. And for people who think it's the notation that matters, they get confused by that. They say, well, really, look. In fact, this came up. I found in that Microsoft lawsuit in the EU, both sides were quoting me. I don't know whether I like that or not. Both sides were quoting me because in some places I keep... What I have said is if you look at a document, you can't tell whether it's a description or a specification unless somebody tells you which way it's intended. I could just be giving you some facts. I could give you facts that are only requirements. I could be giving you all the requirements. There has to be a cover statement. But they interpreted that as they could just give a description instead of giving what I would consider a specification. So the fact that you can use the same notation for all three and everything I'm going to show you today can be used for all three, that fact means that in my mind there's no such thing as a specification language. There are notations that you can use in specifications. Now, every time people hear me start to talk about this, somebody says, so you're into formal methods. I hate formal methods. I hate formal methods if what you mean is VDM and Z and slightly less B. If it comes with a British accent, I hate it. (laughs) And I'm modeling what I'm talking about on what I saw and continue to see among practicing engineers. So I'm looking, I'm not looking at it the way philosophers look at logic. I'm looking at it the way mathematicians, engineers and applied mathematicians look at mathematics. So I don't have any axioms in what I'm talking about. What I have is formulas that tell you how to calculate values of what will be displayed. I don't intend it at this point for automatic verification because I think the first thing we need to do is to be able to communicate with each other. Once we have that, there are all kinds of automated things you can do, but the first step 
is to have something that people can read. It was very, very important to me that the pilots could read our A7 specification. And if I ever lose that, I'm off track. So proof is not the main goal. And I'll talk in a minute a little more about why I say it's not models. So just to show you what I mean, here is an example uh, of a thing I found on the web about travel agents' fees. Now, I think if you look at that first thing, you wouldn't think it was VDM or Z, and you probably wouldn't use the first thing as formal methods. It's entirely informal. But it's a very small step from the first thing on the slide to the second thing on the slide that doesn't have the colors in it. And this is something that I call a tabular mathematical expression. And what it is is a mathematical expression except that I'm able to write it in two, three, four, or five dimensions. And by doing that, I parse it for you. And that's all I'm doing. I've had many, many theoretical friends. Those are people who are theoretically my friend. Uh, (laughs) I've had many, many theoretical friends tell me that there's nothing interesting in these tabular expressions because there's nothing that you can say uh, from it say do with it or say in it or read from it that you couldn't do with conventional expressions. And that's true in theory, but this is one place where in theory means not really. The difference is if I wrote those tables out as a conventional mathematical expression, you would stop listening. The fact that you can still read that. Even this, I can tell you I've got a new paper explaining how to interpret these tables. And this is one of the examples from that paper. That's a mathematical expression happens to be something my wife showed me about body mass index. Let's go on. (laughs) Okay, But we can give it a precise meaning and use it in computer programs. And we can give it a precise... And this thing that my theoretical friends say about, well, it's equivalent to conventional expressions, we've turned that, what they thought of as a problem, into a feature. Because the way we define the meaning of the tabular expressions is by telling you how to find the conventional expression. And then we can use all the conventional expression tools like Maple or PBS or things like that. So now I want to go back to the, to the practical definition. As I said, I, I used to do, and I uh, hope in my post-retirement phase to do it more, a lot of consulting for companies. And whenever we started to talk about reviewing, say, an architecture document or a requirements document, we almost immediately found ourselves into an argument about, this document doesn't say this. And then somebody says, no, that doesn't go in the A spec, that goes in the B spec. Or, you know, and those arguments go on forever and ever, and nobody talks about the content. So one of the first things I thought about when I wanted to uh, think about documentation was how can I uh, define what information should be in a document. Now, I'm not the first one to think that uh, documentation is important. Far from it. When I worked at, uh, in Holland, the managing director of the firm was somebody who actually had been a professor, which is always a mistake to make them management director. And he had religion. His religion was 
documentation. He made everybody produce tons of documents, and he had the feeling that when they were all finished, the machine would sort of magically appear. He also had the feeling that if you wrote in the document that something would exceed the speed of light, you could solve it by pipelining. (laughs) But uh, he specified his documentation very carefully. There had to be a one-centimeter print-free border all around the edge of the paper. It had to be on A4 paper. The the sections had to be numbered such and such a way. And then he got very upset because he saw that people weren't writing documents like that. And he offered a prize to a, a document that met all his requirements. And one of my favorite people in my office, a guy named Johan, he won the prize. He won the prize with a document that had seven sections, because that's what was required, and every section gave exactly the same information. And the manager, of course, didn't notice that. (laughs) You know, it said things like, the name of the program, okay, convert from old format to a new format. Purpose of program, to convert from the old format to the new format. Method, read the control block in the old format and write a control block in the new format. And he went on like, and then detailed method, read it bite by bite and write it bite by bite. First bite, second bite, third bite. I think if he'd been a little more humor, he would have said 17th bite would come first, but he didn't. And, uh, and, and this won the prize. And this was because they weren't specifying the content. So the first hard question for the research that I started some 20 years ago was, if this is the set of documents, and uh, this is pretty much the set of documents, very close, not exactly, that people used to talk about under, under waterfall, but I do not mean a sequential process. I do not mean a sequential process. This is a set of documents I want to have at the end, even if I didn't have them at the beginning. And how can I define their content? And what I came up with was a very simple mathematical idea that each of these documents is the representation of a mathematical relation. Now, a relation, in my mind, is just a set of ordered pairs, and this document has the right information in it if I can tell which pairs are in it and which pairs are not. I'll give you an example. This is um, for what people used to call uh, program proving. When they were doing program proving, they would talking about preconditions and postconditions. So this is a specification for a single sequential program. And what you can say is this program should be a relation between starting states and stopping states. And x, y should be in the relation if you could start the program in x and it would then terminate in y. Now, that's very abstract and nobody knows what to do with it. But in fact, you can describe that by a precondition, postcondition pair if you're careful. Dijkstra's weakest precondition predicate transformers would describe that, but you actually had to use the second one, WLP. Uh, Hainer's, what he called predicative programming, described that relation. And Harlan Mills, because he wanted something more practical, used the multiple assignment statement. All of those described that relation. So you had a complete choice of format and notation but you had to agree on the content. So one of the things we did that I won't have time to talk about in any detail today is all the documents that I've shown you 
we have given relational definitions for that. And we did that some 20 years ago, actually. So here's, for example, for a system requirements thing, it says you've got to know what all the variables you monitor are, all the things in the real world that you have to sense in some way or other, all the things in the real world that you have to control, like the displays. And you want to know the output at time t is a function of the history of the monitors. And you can describe that actually as two relations, one that describes the set of things that are possible without the system, which is nature, and the other one that describes the restriction of that, of that thing to the cases that you want the system to allow. Right. So it's very abstract, it's ready to help practical people, but for example, it, not any relation will work they must satisfy these conditions, which tells you, whether you do it formally or informally, what you have to check. I, I don't really have time to go into this, but you can invite me back. <laughs> you can do the same thing for every one of these documents. This is the one for what I call system design. In system design, you start to look at the hardware and the software. You've got the hardware that translates the monitored variables into actual computer inputs. You need to know the function that describes that mapping. You, need, you have the software that translates its inputs into the bits that are its outputs. And then again, something that maps that hardware that maps it into the controlled variables. From those things, you can see if this design would satisfy the previous design. One of the things that I want is that every time you write a document, you can check it for feasibility. Not for whether it is what you really need. That requires a different kind of review, but whether it could even be built or whether it's inconsistent or incomplete. So we have definitions like that. Now, what fits more into this conference and what I'll talk about a little bit more is software modules, objects, components. Uh, I consider these to be distinct but uh, related concepts. The module, to me, as I said before, is a, a work assignment. The component is something I'll sell you. I won't sell you part of it, or I, I'll sell it to you as a unit. And the, uh, the object, I can have many copies of in the, in the system. And as I said, what turns out to be nice is that I can use the same kind of document techni techniques for all of these. So we've come up with, in the last couple of years, a method which is, although it doesn't, might not have seemed that way to you, is completely different from anything we tried before. What we tried before, and you've seen this if you saw my old papers, and you've seen many people do the same thing. You know, you, have, you sort of say, well, if you do this, the following things will be visible. Right? If you set this, that'll, that'll be visible over there. So if you push on the X on the stack and then you ask what's the top of the stack, it'll be X. Right? So you describe things operation by operation. This comes very natural to programming, to programmers. And because I once was a programmer before I got old, it came natural to me and it took me 30 years to get away from it. But I got away from it without realizing how important what I was doing was when we had to write the requirements document for the A7. In the A7, the requirements document, we took a list of the outputs that we had to produce and we described the output as a function of the history of all the input values. So we didn't think about 
well, if the pilot pushes this button, then that happens, and the pilot pushes this button, then that happens. It's not that we didn't try that. It's that that got too complicated because it always depended on what had happened in the history, and we always had to start describing internal states in arbitrary ways, and we didn't like that. So then we discovered we could write this very readable document, and as I said, pilots could read it. Even managers could read it, and, um, which is a much harder test. And and because uh, pilots are often engineers and, and well-trained people. And <clears throat> we learned, learned later on that even telephone operators could read it if it was talking about telephone systems. And we just did it output by output. And for each output, we said, look at the history of the inputs. This is how you tell what the output is now. And we've been able to do that for the, uh, for the modules, for the external interfaces. We also have, again, it's not as important for the purpose of object orientation, making object orientation work. We have ways of using these relational tabular methods to document internal design. Like you often hear when you've decided to build a document, you should review the internal design before you code. And then people sort of look at you puzzled way and say, well, if you don't show them the code, what is the design? Now, there actually is an answer in the theoretical literature about that. It's three things. First of all, you have to describe the data structure and describe it completely, all the variables that are used in there. Second, you describe how the data structure is interpreted at the interface level, at the abstract level, something called an abstraction relation. And third, you describe what each program on the interface does to the data structure. That gives you uh, something you can check. So on the outside level, we have things we call traces, which are the history of what has been done to this module. Then for each event, we have a, a program function and a trace function. And then we have the abstraction function. And this forms what relational mathematics people call a commuting diagram. And if it computes, commutes, rather, then your, this design can be implemented and will satisfy the spec. It could be incredibly stupid from a programming point of view, but at least you won't implement it and then find out it doesn't do the right thing. Right? So this, this is a, a very important document. I don't remember if I in, included an example of it, but I'll show you examples of other things that will give you some idea. So what I've hoped to establish to this point is that I think a document should be descriptions of a set of relations. Now we come to the other important point that I want to make. I want to be able to describe mathematical relations in a readable way. I know that every relation can be described by what's called its characteristic predicate, which is a predicate which is true of, of a pair if that pair is in the relation. But I want to think, how can I write it so that people will want to read it? Right. So I think I have an example here. This is an example of, don't do this at home, please. <laughs> and don't try to read it here. This is an example of what I wouldn't want anybody to write. Now, before I go on and show you how I would write it, I'll tell you what it is. When I first went to Limerick, they asked me to work with the local uh, part of Dell. Dell has a manufacturing plant in Limerick. 
which employs a huge number of people for a small town like Limerick. And they're fearful. The whole Irish government fears they're moving on because they have a reputation for not being most loyal to such things. They go wherever they can offer their customers the cheapest computers. And so <clears throat> they keep trying. Everybody who works at that factory wants to make it efficient. So they had tried to check up, for example, they had a program for checking keyboards that they'd been hooked up properly. You, want, you never want to ship a, a, a laptop like this with a keyboard that isn't hooked up properly. And there's a sequence, and they had a program that would display instructions to the, uh, to the person at the end of the assembly line. And if they followed those instructions, and they, the program would say, okay, it passes, if it did pass. So a complete check of the wiring on the keyboard. This was documented in two English, document, English language documents, totaling about 22 pages. Uh, when we studied those and attempted to do what, what I'm going to show you, we discovered that it wasn't consistent. We discovered that it had flaws. And when we really got it worked out, we found a few things that looked odd to us. They turned out to be mistakes. They were mistakes in that it was showing the wrong key to press. And then we got curious and we watched. The operators knew which key to press and never looked at the screen. <laughs> so they missed it. And that's why testing is, is, is very dangerous. If somebody came up and actually had followed the instructions on the screen, they would have been failing all the laptops <laughs> or passing the bad ones. So the real question is, this is a very compact way of saying what they had in 21 pages of English, which were hard to find things in, were incomplete, inconsistent, right? But nobody wants this. They'd rather have that 21 pages. But what we showed them instead was this. And this is a table. Now, it doesn't mean much to you because, oh, I'm advertising Apple. Um, it doesn't mean much to you because you don't know the, the application, so I'll have to give you a little bit of a guide. But basically, T is the length of the, key, the, the keystroke sequence. And if the, it has four columns in the main, the main grid of that table. One for where the keystroke sequence is empty, like you're just starting. One where you've had one keystroke. One where you've had the maximum number of keystrokes and one in between. And then there are conditions about comparing the uh, <coughs> key that the computer thinks you pressed with the key you were told to press, which is how you know if the key thing is done right. And it's a little bit more complicated than you might expect because you have to have escape sequences and to be able to correct wrong things, right? So, but this is the whole thing. This is 21 pages of documentation. And we did not find anybody who was involved with that program that didn't prefer this. We found some managers who didn't like it because they could read the English. They didn't realize, because they didn't try to use it, that they couldn't use it. There's a difference between being able to read it. But to me, this is just such a huge step forward from this or the English, that I think it makes my point. So what I'm trying to say is that for this documentation, what we have is two distinct ideas. The one that everybody sees and recognizes as something new, although it isn't that new, is the tabular expressions. They realize that when they have to write a mathematical formula and it has a lot of if, ends, and buts, this is a much better way to write it. 
I'll come back and, and talk about what we've done in the last few years with these uh, because we can now write all kinds of tables we couldn't write before and we can have the semantics for them in a very simple way. And the other thing that I just need to remind you of is the relational model of documentation that tells you exactly what information has to be in the document. And both ideas are, I think, the key to success in coming up with a practical, theoretically sound uh, documentation scheme. Now, none of these ideas arose out of academic things. The first time I ever thought about these ideas was because I accepted a foolhardy challenge from the U.S. Navy to try to rewrite the A-7 onboard flight program. And when I discovered that they didn't have a useful requirements document, I tried to write my own, and we came up with a lot of these ideas, trying to solve a real problem. And I've heard people like Barry Bame call it the best requirements document they'd ever seen. And we've used it since then. On, well, there's a nuclear plant, uh, well, it's in Ontario between Toronto and Kingston, if that helps any of you, sort of north of New York State. <laughs> Uh, and uh, there's a nuclear plant there that had the first computerized safety system in, that we know of in the world. And they were afraid to turn it on because they were having trouble with the code complexity. We've used it for in some inspection and documentation there. We've used it, just so you don't think we only do real-time systems, we used it on a service information network evaluation system for uh, Bell Laboratories many years ago. More recently, we've used it for a component of an Ericsson radio base station for their mobile phone system, and we've used it for this Dell keyboard thing, and lots of other smaller things. And I know that early versions of these ideas are being used a lot in the military by the people who work with the Naval Research Lab, where I did the original A7 work. And the, the nice thing about this, to me, what makes it different well, one, one of the signs that it's different from Z and VDM is that all these people are using it long after I left. Now, somehow, I feel shortened. I, I've lost some consulting income. <laughs> but the fact is that in the Ontario Hydro continued and the uh, CANDU reactor people, Atomic Energy of Canada, uh, they've continued to use it. It's being used in Korea, South Korea. <laughs> on their nuclear plants because they bought some of the, uh, some of the things from the Canadians. It, it's been used in quite a few places, and people who use it like it. And you don't need a PhD to use it. In fact, it probably hurts. But there's a couple of things that I want to, to say about it. The first is, it's not something where you can just pick it up in, in a two-hour or a two-day course. It requires a lot of training to see what you need to do. It's not the way you usually do business. And, but we find that, it, as I said, it doesn't take a PhD. It takes usually something with the equivalent of an engineering degree. And one of the interesting things is we've discovered that it has far fewer mistakes. I've mentioned my theoretical friend, who's actually a good friend, um, <clears throat> who started teaching his students that they didn't need tables. They could do everything with Boolean expressions, which, as I've said, was theoretically true. And to prove it to them, he asked them to do both. 
And then he came to me and he said, I found something funny. They got the tables right and the, and the expressions wrong. Right? And some of them were, you know, syntactically wrong, parentheses didn't match and so forth. On the tables, that's an awful lot easier. So we've also found that they have many practical benefits because we can use something that is precise and checkably complete. On the A7, we had a set of these tables and we were a little worried that we'd have to hold the pilot's hand to read them. They just went off and came back and told us we were wrong. And they came back with really detailed things like, that doesn't happen at 3,700 feet. That happens at 5,000 feet. Or that was in that document, but doesn't happen anymore that way. You need this condition too. They found all those things. Now, first of all, pilots are very smart people, and they use that thing. They don't have time to read the manual while they're flying. So they know it all in their head. And uh, they found all this, but that, that as I said, was, was really important. The people who uh, are still at NRL can now animate things, so you can start to use it as a prototype. You write a requirements document, you can then sort of say, you have a very slow, non-real-time prototype where you can sit down and say, is this what you really want? And that's the same document. It's generated automatically from the document. So there's no worry about the document and the prototype behaving differently. The, uh, in the Darlington station, a lot of what we wrote had to be reviewed by physicists. Physicists don't know discrete math, but they could still read those tables. Right? Uh, when we first completed the Ericsson thing, they told us this is no good and marked all the errors, which to me was a positive sign because what it meant, everything in there was something we got out of their documents and by asking their people. But these were not always right. So we, we believe that these have real practical, if, if you do nothing more than write the document, you get a huge amount out of it. But then you can go on. For example, I have a, a, had a very good student, one with a lot of practical experience before he came to me, named Dennis Peters, who wrote Oracle and monitor generators. So from the program function tables, he could uh, generate, uh, he could, he could uh, generate uh, programs that would be, instead of the so-called gold program, in other words, you would run the program and it would check to see if it got the result it should have. Well, let's go back. Not the result it should have, the result that the document said it should. Sometimes it's a document that's wrong. But what you really want to end up with after that testing is a consistent pair, a document and a program where the program does what the document says it does. Somebody was asking me yesterday about documents getting out of date. If you test every program change against the document that people give you, that document doesn't get out of date right? because it fails the test. So that's a very, very useful thing. He also did it for real-time systems. He could generate a program that would run in parallel with the existing real-time program, do sample data, and tell you when it was failing, which is, was a bit harder. We also found that we could do test coverage measurements. Like you have a test data set, you want to be sure you've covered all the cases and covered them thoroughly. You can take the table and replace the formulas with the number of tests in each case and get some idea whether you have balanced tests. Uh, a couple of people now have done 
very simple statistical testing with reliability estimation based on these documents. Uh, I have a researcher now named Judy Feng, and Judy is, uh, is uh, interested in mutation testing and is applying mutation testing ideas to these documents. And then there have been several people who've looked at test case generation. You look at test case generation for two kinds of tests. You're looking for extreme value or what we've called in other papers interesting points. If you look at the basic functions and you find where they have discontinuities or cross zero, and then the functions you've defined using the tables, you get a set of interesting points. And you want to make sure you've tested those because that's where errors are likely. And then you do statistical you know, you, you attach probabilities to each of the cases and generate statistical tests which allow you to do reliability estimation. And uh, Liu and von Morenschild, they both, um, <clears throat> well, he, she was his student, they also tried to use equation-solving techniques to find the boundary cases and do boundary value testing, all with the same input documents. Now, We've used these in inspection and verification. And it's my, my own feeling, by the way, that precondition, postcondition doesn't work as well as a relational model because it doesn't scale up. It doesn't scale up in the same way in that every program, no matter how big, has a function. If it's, if it's a deterministic program, it has a function. So you, don't have, you can deal with big programs as if they were primitive if you have their documents. So we found that this, this scales up better. And we've used that, this, this documentation idea in the, in, in the uh, inspection of the Darlington plant. Now, what we felt is, first of all, if you want to, I've seen so many reviews where errors escape the reviews, and you don't want that to happen in a nuclear plant or an airplane, or even a banking system, actually. It can be very expensive if there's a flaw in a banking system, especially one that people can quietly exploit for a while. So what, we've gave some thought to what it takes to make an inspection thing, thing. First of all, nobody should just read the code. They have to use the code. You want them to actually use the code to answer questions. We've gotten very good results just by asking people questions about where in the code is this done and where in the code is that done, or what would you have to change if you wanted this to come out in French. You know, just if they have to use the code. I met one very smart program manager once, Navy officer in the San Diego programming lab in his six months on shore, who uh, had all the civilians working for him making changes in the code. And I looked at this and I said, this is silly. I said, you're not going to be allowed to use those changes. That's not the, the standard interface. He said, I'm going to throw the changes away. But before I made them make those changes, they were only looking for the commas. <laughs> they weren't really reading the code. Once they started making those changes, they found the errors in the code and sent them back to the contractor that was producing them. So you want them to use the code. We want to take advantage of any hierarchical structure that's there. And mostly you want to remember Dijkstra and his separation concerns, and you want to be able to look at a small section of code at a time. And you want to be able to proceed systematically so you haven't overlooked anything. Now, we developed a process that we think achieves those things, and it's based on the documentation. We said, first of all, you need a specification of what the code should do. And then you 
do a hierarchical decomposition to, uh, into a set of displays. And I think I... No, I don't. I will tell you what a display is. A display takes a small section of code that's usually small because it invokes other things. And it has three things on a display. A specification of what it should do, usually a tabular expression like this, and the code and specifications of what the invoked programs do. Now, the advantage of this is that this display is right or wrong on its own. Everything you need to know is there. Right? So if you have 2,000 of those and you inspect 2,000 of them, you only have one global check to make, and that is that the, every table that appears at the bottom of one page appears exactly the same way in exactly the same content at the top of another. And if you do that, you've looked at a very big, complicated thing by looking at a little thing at a time. So that we, we, we use the display approach, and then we examine all these things. At one point on the Darlington thing, because they were in a hurry to get approval, we had a team of 60 people looking at these things. Now, can, now, no one of them ever looked at the whole program, but we still came up confident that the whole program was correct. And what we did was to recognize the limits of human comprehension and the inability for people to look at a whole program at once, what Dykes called the smallness of the human skull, and then to make sure that we weren't overlooking things. We had the document at the bottom be the same as the... Uh, the specification at the bottom be the same as the specification at the top of the other page. Those were the links between the pages. So I think I, I said I didn't have it. I do have it. Sorry. Now, some people look at this and say, isn't that stepwise refinement? The answer is not really. It's almost stepwise refinement, except the people who did stepwise refinement kept, re kept making the program longer and longer. They kept inserting the parts in there. We keep it separate so that you have that, that little bit at a time with the motto, you should never look at a long program, the older you get. Now, how effective was this? This is something I only learned a few years ago. We had two programs which had been tested actively for six years. The reason they'd been tested actively for six years is that the programs were ready six years early, and the programmers wanted something to do. So they started thinking of all kinds of testing. They'd been testing it for six years. You might wonder why they were ready six years early. It's because the uh, actual plant was 13 years late and the program was only seven years late. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. <laughs> they won. And they won by six years. So they felt there was no bugs left. But when we did this inspection, we found 218 discrepancies between what they thought it did and what it did Luckily, only 18 of these needed to be repaired. But here's the thing that I only learned recently. They continue to use that program. It's in use today. They've made occasional modifications when they change their operating procedures or new equipment, and they have never found an error that we missed. And I don't know anybody else with that kind of a track record. It's two sizable programs, not great big giant telephone switches or something like that, but still two critical programs, 15 years, no errors. Right? Now, and that's why they continue to use it every time they make a change. 
So I, I think this is worth thinking about. And the key is divide and conquer and use precise documentation to connect the things up. If the thing is an object and a component, you use what I call the trace function method. If the thing is a program within a component, you use this display concept, but you have a documentation thing. Now, recently, we've been looking at how to make tools. And one of the pleasant surprises I've had, tools to make this job easier, because, for example, the Darlington job was done with all the tables written in Word. And that's not what I wanted to do. And it, it has real problems. It means the engineers have to do all the formatting because the secretary might change the meaning of a formula. So we have the engineers do, spending all their time trying to make the table fit on the page in a readable way. So we've started to make some tools reflecting this experience. And what we've discovered is something nice. We are connecting the worlds of functional programming with imperative programming. Because all of these tables represent functions. And if we want to make tools that will do things like simulation and checking, functional programming tools, all we have to do is translate this into a, a conventional expression and we can use functional programming concepts. So the tools that we're now completing as I get ready to leave Limerick are in fact based on a functional programming core. So we sort of said, okay, we're using functional specifications for imperative programs. And I find that a good way to use both. I don't worry about the efficiency of the one, and I don't worry about the illegibility of the other. I'll, I'll let you guess which is which. Okay. So what I want to come back to now is I've heard throughout this conference a lot of lamenting that we don't, um, people don't use object-oriented ideas right, and they do all sorts of things wrong, and a lot of it is because they use the implementation because it's the only precise description instead of the documents. So I want to think about what can we do to make object orientation work better, to let you really hide what you want the objects to hide. So what we can change is, first of all, this hasty and unprofessional approach to structure in which people write vague buzz diagrams of various kinds and say this is the structure, but they don't really answer the questions you need to write compatible programs. The habit of doing the documentation afterwards, I want to use documentation the way building builders or architects, bridge builders use documentation. The I want to go from group reading to this kind of systematic inspection based on documentation. I want to do test generation and result evaluation based on the documents. And I want to get rid of the myth that anybody who knows between 2 and 20 programming languages is a software engineer. If they know 21, they're an academic, and if they know 1, they're a student. <laughs> I just don't like that. I think we need to train people in how to do these things and to tell them this is the way it's done. I mean, when I went to electrical engineering school, I already had ham and commercial radio licenses. And I knew how to build circuits and how to repair circuits and all that kind of stuff. That isn't what I learned in engineering school. I learned how to use mathematics to make sure I had the right circuit, how to design optimally and to review and all the things that engineers do. And I think we need to be teaching the same things to our software engineers. 
And that kind of engineer uh, education is based much more on the way engineers are educated, what's called professional education, the way lawyers and doctors are educated, than on the kind of laissez-faire science view of education. So here's my summary. I think we need to take a much more serious view of documentation. It should be normal and expected. People should know about that before they come to industry. Somebody needs to teach Microsoft how to stop paying that $3 million three million euros a day. With I'm, I'm now openly offering to do it for one day's worth. <laughs> Not to do it, mind you, because I don't have the information just to tell them how I would do it and even to help them do it. All they have to do is pay me one day's fine. I, I need that for my retirement. And then I think we need to think about why people don't do that. Now, I've heard all kinds of reasons why people don't do that, but I think I have to put it back on the blame of myself and my fellow educators. We haven't taught people how to do these things I've shown you. And I, don't, I think we should have licenses for software engineers, and you should, maybe not using my notation, but you can find a better one, but we should be able to write documents at least as good as these before you get a license. So that's the end of my talk. I, I think we have a little time for questions, right? I don't know where the uh, referee is, but... I'll, I'll just go ahead then. Okay, go ahead. Okay. So it seems to me that the key to all of this is having this tabular notation that makes you have documentation that people can actually understand. two keys. I keep saying that. There's two I, keys. And, and relational. But that kind of yeah. falls out. Okay, fine. Whatever. Okay. But... <laughs> uh, no, I can use the tables other ways. Right, okay. okay. So the question I had is, does this always work? I mean, is it all, it's, it, you've, you're, the conclusion of your talk, you seem to imply that it would work pretty much everywhere. And if that's true, I'd like to know how to make it work in other areas, because I didn't get that out of your talk. I saw a, a couple of point solutions, point places where it would work. So, well, and if it won't work everywhere, it would be nice to know when it wouldn't, when it, when it wouldn't. Well, the thing I can say with confidence is, in theory, it'll work everywhere. <laughs> and the practical applications show that there are places where it'll work. They've also shown us, I, I said I'd say this, that there are places where it doesn't work as well as I would like, simply because the functions require different kinds of tables. And one of the progresses we've made at Limerick is we can now do even those colored tables, circular tables, triangular tables, all kinds of funny kinds of tables to fit the problem at hand with the same clarity and things. And I think that will grow. We, we have an extensible set of tables now. And, and you think you can do it for that Microsoft example? No, I think they can do it with my help. So I, I wanted to start with a, maybe a small correction. I was actually at the, my first ever computer science conference where I was a paying attendee in 1979, Specifications of Reliable Software in Boston. And you told us the story about documents need coffee stains on them to be useful. And I believed it. And it was true. But it's not true anymore because the documents are now on a glass screen. <laughs> And, if I, and I really try not to pour coffee on that. It's not because I'm not using the documents. Yeah, we're going to have to find another test. <laughs> Maybe make a version of Acrobat that keeps track of whether people are looking at it or not. But apart from that, uh, you didn't say anything about executable specifications. 
And I certainly believe in documents and code reading and intelligent people looking at the specification of the code and looking for discrepancies. But you can also do a lot with compute cycles, which are essentially much cheaper than people's brain cycles. You can't find all the errors that way, as we all know. But you can detect discrepancies okay, by using things like FIT, which take a table and the code and look for them. My wife would kill me. <laughs> My wife would kill. Don't tell him that my wife that her picture came up there. She doesn't like that picture. I do. That's all. Um, in fact, I saw her back there. Now I turned purple. But um, the the thing was about executable. I don't like the word executable. I think they have to be machinable. And there are all kinds of things where we can use CPU cycles. But we heard her in, in the last keynote talk about the step forward being able to have interpreters. The simulators that we generate from some of these documents are interpreting the specs, not executing them. And we also do things like, from those tables, we can generate theorems and feed them to things like PVS and prove that they're complete and consistent. And uh, we, can, we can do type checks and all kinds of other things. So that's why we were beginning to build tools and that's why I would like to see continued to pay to tools. And I think the precision and the simple mathematics that's in there makes it quite easy to build tools. And the fact that we define the meaning of a table by telling you how to compute a long, unreadable expression in conventional format means that if there are existing tools like Maple, Mathematica, various theorem provers, you can use them. Great. Okay. Oh, thanks. Uh, David Unger, Whiskey 6, Delta Hotel, stroke Victor Echo 4. <laughs> short question. I lost my license year ago, years ago. So here's the small idea. One way we test programs is we deliberately stick errors in them and see what happens when we hit the test suite with them. Mm -hmm. What about deliberately sticking some errors in the documentation and seeing if the processes pick those up as a way of testing the documentation? I think that's very close to one of the things that Judy Feng, it's mutation, right, that yes. she's looking at. So we're looking at both mutating the programs and mutating the specs, and, and then looking for adequacy of test cases from that point of view. And that's one of many things I think we can do. Having mathematical input is extremely valuable. You can do all kinds of things. Having it readable is what's important. Thank you. Um, people who create movies, for example, uh, things whose primary um, engagement with the world is uh, creating human experience, often do storyboarding. And uh, rapid prototyping of interactive systems has often been compared to storyboarding. Um, the whole problem with building interactive systems is that you can't really know what to want until you've experienced an approximation of what you thought you wanted, and experiencing the approximation, iterating that, you come to realize, no, that isn't what I wanted. I wanted something else. Um, how does the, the presentation of an experience as a form of documenting what the interactive experience that you're trying to engineer, how, do, how does that fit into this kind of, of, um, of documentation and um, uh, approach to correctness? Okay. Well, there's, there's one experience I haven't mentioned yet, which is a, a former colleague of mine in, in Darmstadt, Germany, 
who used this to deal with his customers. And, and he found it made it a good way for him to interview. Just the tables themselves made it a good way for him to interview his customers and get answers what they wanted in all the cases and to make them pay him for the changes, <laughs> okay, which is more important to him. Then the second, but, but then the simulators that we've built, the things that will allow you to simulate the system based on the document, slow, inefficient, small scale, that gets you your prototype generated from the document. That's what I'd like, you know, we have done very little of that, but I want to do more. And that's where I think uh, you get what you want. What I don't like is where somebody builds a prototype and then they go ahead and build a real thing, but it's different. I want to have the prototype and the real thing generated and bound by the same set of documents. Okay. First, thanks a lot, Dave. I think you're always inspiring, and today you have been even more. And then I have a question. You talk about uh, how you write documentation, and uh, I buy your approach. I hope also Microsoft will buy it. But it, <laughs> me it, too. Is not, it is unclear to me how you manage the evolution of your documentation, because requirement evolve. The code evolved together with the requirement, and now you create a machinery which needs to evolve in an isomorphic way with requirement and code. Well, the, the fact is, if you looked at, say, even the earliest example of our requirements document, it actually applied the information hiding ideas very, very well. In uh, that, so it was, it was actually quite modular. You could... When we went to, say, go from the Navy version of that airplane to the Air Force version of that airplane, which was much more different than you think it is, because different sensors, different weapon systems, different attack problems, uh, we could do it as an evolution to what we had. We didn't have to throw it away. And the reason is that you end up saying, okay, for each output, you have one, one function, and that's one table. If an output changes, you can. If you notice that some of the tables are alike, you fold them out into what we call shared services, and we write tables for those. And then those are the, you do that if you think that if they change, you'll change all consistently. So you can organize that document so that it's easy to evolve. Now, somebody can come along and say, we don't want to use this, you know, pl- uh, sort into plowshares kind of thing. <laughs> We don't want to use this as an attack airplane anymore. We want to use it for crop dusting. You throw a lot away. But you can make the typical kinds of changes to the document, and then everything sort of flows through. And the hierarchical uh, module structure that we derive from the document is, is very, you know, is derived from the document and follows the changes and tells you which things need to be changed. We have time for two more questions. Okay, this is Thomas Kühne from formerly Darmstadt, now Victoria University of Wellington. Um, you've given us your opinion on the Z and VDM notations. Do you have an opinion on alloy? You might look at it more favorably given its relational nature. The relational nature is not what bothered me about alloy. It, the way they use it and the lack of the tabular notation and the lack of the clear model for what information should be in what document is what bothers me. I've never liked the idea of lightweight and, and, and heavyweight formal methods. I just think we need precise formal methods and we have to find ways to make them readable. You make them readable by organizing the information and by using the tabular notation. And I don't see either of those things in alloy. 
And I mean, I think it's very clever, like most of the things Daniel Jackson does. It's very clever. But I, I didn't feel that it was a big step towards the kind of applications I want to be able to do. And it has a British accent. <laughs> but he's, he's lived in the U.S. for a long, long time. So, <laughs> so, um, so, so this is really great. Um, have you applied your techniques to um, user interfaces and complex database systems? Well, there are user interfaces in, in airplanes, you know. They're, well, they're, yeah, they're, so GUI interfaces with widgets and so no, forth. Yeah, we, we uh, have because it, it turns out to be just like an airplane. In fact, the, the older systems we had to generate reports were a little bit more of a stretch. But for the GUI interfaces, you have a set of outputs that can appear and not appear. You have a table that says whether it appears or not. And then you have another table that gives the values. And it works out pretty well. And complex data structures in a database. I, I have a student back in Limerick that is doing that now for, for one of our input tools. For that. It, 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 it's not a problem. It, it works that's one, that's one of the places where I can say it works really, not just in theory. Okay, well, except question number two, origin zero, as a final question. <laughs> yeah. um, we talked about, in your conclusion, you talked about how we can uh, teach uh, professionals the use of the tabular notation. And the current practice is we have OO approaches. And previously, we have structured approaches. So any ideas on how we can use the tabular notation and perhaps uh, bring, bring it in? Well, I think it's deeper than, than the approach. What, what I find when computer scientists teach about software, because they're scientists and because they're interested in research and methods, they teach about courses. And courses about requirements. And they show you 12 different methods of doing requirements, and you end up with students who can't thoroughly do one. So, so the first thing I think is we need to be more focused and say, what do these people need to be able to do when they come out? The second thing is, I don't think that we give them the underlying fundamentals well enough. I don't think, for example, that one course in which they see 12 different logics is the right way to do it. Now, uh, I do have I started at McMaster University uh, a, an accredited engineering course for software. And it went all the way down to this. We couldn't touch the first year because it was shared with the other engineers. But it went all the way back to the second year. And everything led up to teaching people to doing this. Because to do this, you do have to understand what for all means and what there exists means, what a function is. And, you know, the, the, the same things you need to understand to understand what differential equations have to do with electrical circuits. And so you have to start way back. It isn't just a thing of, well, I had one more course on Parnas's methods. That isn't going to do it. Right? It needs to be a full professional program in which every course is aimed at giving people the fundamental things they need to know to use a method and the experience in using the method. In my engineering education, we always had labs and lectures the lectures, we got the theory. The labs, we learned why we learned that theory. And the guideline on the program I designed was we would teach no theory unless they would use it in a project. And we would teach them nothing empirical in a project unless we showed them that there was theory behind it. And it's, it's Thank you for listening to the Oopsla Podcast. 
If you want to know more about the Oopsla Conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>